This is the So You Can Heal podcast with Josh. And Abby. I'm Josh. I'm a licensed social worker and a therapist at Still Point. And I'm Abby Parker. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and therapist at Still Point. So Abby, how have you been this past week? I've been a little bit overwhelmed. All that's changing in the world and how the people around me are impacted by these changes. Um, People getting sick, uh, waiting for tests to come back to see if they have COVID. A lot of fear around what's going to happen next in our world. And so it's been a little bit overwhelming. How about you? Yeah, that overwhelming feeling is definitely widespread, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has been overwhelming here at the house, too. Being someone who had taken a COVID test and finally got it back negative, but still overwhelming. And if you happen to hear snorting, I promise it's not me. My English bulldog is walking around today. Um, So if you hear someone that sounds asthmatic, (laughs) it is her. She doesn't have COVID though? No, she's just a, a bully with allergies so hello Bella welcome I don't know why she she just can't get comfortable right now I don't know what her deal is she I think she's ready to EAT and she has about another hour (laughs) before we do that so Tori has an automatic feeder Mm -hmm. um because we found out early on that she really liked to eat and uh, to the point where she couldn't move. And so we have to regulate. And she also comes around about an hour before it's time to eat. Yeah. Her internal clock starts telling her, like, uh-huh. it's happening. So, yeah. So today we are really focusing on this concept of pivoting and what that means to our security. And especially right now, in thinking about how, whether we're safe, whether we're not safe, what threats could be coming to impact our security. And I'm talking about security in the sense of who we are, what we want, what we wish. I've had lots of conversations with people in my world about Thanksgiving Like, what do you do? Who do you spend time with? What choices do you have to make? And there's a lot of insecurity around that right now. That is a conversation that is kind of widespread right now. Like, even the people in my world are having those same types of conversations around what is safe, what isn't safe. Can we do this? Should we do this? And if we do, what's that going to look like? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
And just to note, like there's also this security piece that's being threatened with education. Schools transitioning to hybrid schedules or virtual schedules and families being impacted. Like how can parents or caretakers work through this? And so with all of these different changes, it's kind of stirring everything up again. Yeah. And I don't think we've really even had time to process grief or loss for the changes that have happened earlier on this year. Right. I mean, you can't really process events that are continuing to happen. And that's the thing about pivoting is that even though you're processing things or you're trying to like move through things, whether you have to step and look at your options and change directions or whether something forces you to stop and look at your choices and change directions. Right. It's very uncomfortable either way. It is very uncomfortable. And that's where with pivoting, I think of pivoting as stopping, planting a foot, looking around, seeing the possibilities in order to move forward. And it's difficult to know what possibilities we have right now and which direction to go. As you were talking, like one of the questions that kind of came up for me was like, how do we know what even is possible right now? Right. Because there are so many unknowns Mm -hmm. and there's so much uncertainty with things. It can really lead to a space of being insecure and not knowing what to do for yourself. Yeah, I like how you said that. It can lead you to a space of being insecure and not knowing what to do for yourself. Yeah. Josh, what is insecurity to you? Insecurity, as we've learned through the past couple episodes, I am very much Merriam-Webster, Google, um, where you're more the internalized (laughs) definer. Um, We can switch today. No, (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, insecurity is the state of not being sure of oneself, a lack of confidence that can lead to anxiety. It can also be a state of being open to danger and not being safe. Say that one again. It can also be a state of being open to danger and not being safe, which I think that, I mean, cause I even draw that one out a little bit. Like it's about being open to the potential harm or hurt that can come. And that is fueled by our anxiety and by our fear. And I just think that that's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah. What's fascinating about it? That generally I've always kind of seen insecurity as like that lack of confidence Mm -hmm. to that same side. Like it's also the idea that because of those fears, like you are open to that harm or that fear, that hurt, 
more so than if you are secure mm. because then the risk is managed differently. So like what is insecurity to you? I see the insecurity being a result of deep wounding, like that impact of shame and fear and how it deteriorates a person's attachment, self-worth, identity, and that questioning that came with uncertainty then becomes more rooted and it becomes a pattern. So it sounds like insecurity is the internalizing of one's uncertainty. Yes, that's a very good way to put it. So how does one's own negativity or way of thinking affect their own safety? I think how one thinks about their security, their safety, how they perceive it, like the story they end up telling themselves about their own security impacts greatly the lens in which they are either looking for things or don't look for things. So it's like, which door do you open and which one do you close? Or which Mm -hmm. ones do you not even think are there? If I were to put a voice to insecurity and knowing that this is coming from my lens, it would tell you that there will always be something wrong with you, that you have no chance of getting out of this dark and alone hole and you do not deserve love. And so if we think about how that would impact someone's perspective of how to maintain security or promote safety in a relationship or even within themselves, it would be very harming. I mean, our brains are negatively biased. So it would be much easier to entertain those types of thoughts rather than like that wise mind or the mind that is more rational, understanding, like able to comfort to some degree those insecure thoughts. And Josh, we know that like the concept of wise mind comes from dialectical behavioral therapy. And I can't think about the wise mind without thinking about the Venn diagram that goes with it. Can you tell everyone about that? So yeah, um, in DBT, the Venn diagram, which is like the two circles that overlap in the center. So in the emotional mind section, reason and logical thinking are difficult. It uses only emotions to make decisions. It can be very reactive. It tells us how we are really doing and uses core psychological needs to kind of manage itself. The rational mind, which is the other circle, approaches knowledge intellectually. It thinks logically and uses past experiences as a way to gauge. It uses facts and research as well as planning. And this is more focused. And where the rational and emotional mind meet, you have the wise mind. 
the wise mind is more intuitive thinking, arrangement and balance between the rational and emotional mind. And it's about living mindfully. That concept of wise mind reminds me of like the core self, like core safety. Yes. And I think we're able to use that space of the wise mind to speak to the various parts of us that may be showing up, whether that's the hurt, the angry, the shame, the disappointment, to all of those pieces, the insecure, the scared parts, so that we can begin having a voice that is kind of helping to balance out maybe potentially some of the negative thinking that we have or are experiencing. And if we think about all of those parts working either together or against one another, I mean, that's a lot to manage. And then we have our experiences on top of that that are either informing those um, or disproving those. I mean, but I find a lot of times, especially when it comes to like insecurity, fear, and anxiety, the things that we tend to be afraid of happening most, we start noticing more. Yes. So it is like this constant self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent of, well, this is what I, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. It's because that fear is so strong. That's literally all we can think about. So that's all we really start seeing. We miss the opportunities or we miss the experiences of things that are different than those fears or anxieties. And I think that's important for all of us to remember that if we are set on something or we're seeing something in a very particular way, no matter what, there is more than what we see. There's more questions, there's more possibilities, there's more opportunities, there's more outcomes, there's potentially more danger, there's more. And I think a lot of times that can get lost in our culture right now. We end up limiting our view based on our fears or our perspective, and then those end up becoming values or beliefs. If something bad happened to me enough times, then I would think that is how it is supposed to be. And then I look for that in my society or community or within relationships to happen again, because that survival instinct is telling me where that insecurity that has formed tells me that I am in danger or that I don't deserve or that it's not possible. It becomes the norm. Yes, it becomes the norm. And this can happen like in layers generationally. Like I'm fascinated by epigenetics and how certain conditioning is passed on generation after generation because of how it changes our cells and our genes. And I think the courage and the pivoting to take that opportunity and state or ask for what you need is a completely different paradigm 
because I think it's very difficult to ask or stand true to what you need as you move through, whether it be oppressiveness or insecurity or whatever other barriers are holding you back or keeping you passive. I mean, and especially for like the passivity part, like there are, are times when you don't know what you need to be asking for. Right. I mean, and I think therein lies, like educate yourself so that you know at least a context of what is happening so that you can start understanding what it is that you do need to focus on. And as far as like the like communities that have been oppressed for years, like I think that they do know what they need. We just don't listen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think with that, like at this point in history, like they are like globally using their voice Mm-hmm. to speak which I think is such an amazing thing to be able to witness but at the same time it's sad that we have to have it happen in mm-hmm. the first place yeah so yeah Josh in this conversation we're having I think about how criticism impacts communities and I was shuffling through some papers over the weekend from like high school, kind of sorting through my like boxes of stuff. And I came across a a, a notes from an English class on like literary criticism. And it's a triangle. And at the top of the triangle is the universe. And so that is, you know, society, historically, moralistically telling us how to live or behave. And then the audience or the community is the response or the feeling that someone has in regards to the artist, which is the third point of the triangle. And the artist is the power to imagine the ambitions, the frustrations, the repressed needs. So it's that um, the expression, the power to imagine. And in the middle, it says that's where the work happens for there to be meaning made. And so if I think about how society is managing, it is more in the form of criticism rather than connection, where there are reactions against or opposing expressions. And I think it's very difficult for people to acknowledge differences and to nurture the connections that you can have with people who are different than you. And we try to run from that, but we can't. And I think that kind of moves us into like the, the next section of like some of the parts of us are so wounded or shamed that we aren't able to allow ourselves to be in a space to be more open accepting and truly have those connections i mean 
thinking of our last episode where we were talking about like symbiotic relationships and differentiated relationships, I mean, like that is a symbiote, like they're expecting yes. symbiosis or symbiosis. Yes. Yep. Like the ability to be able to accept everyone for who they are truly requires that stretching, healing, and growth in order for them to become the differentiated person so that they can do those things. Right. And so I think on a large scale, being able to see that, I mean, that is the epitome of a symbiotic relationship. And it breeds criticism and insecurity. Yeah. It's the shame, blame, criticism, and all the, all of that usually comes down to insecurity of some sort comes from a place of insecurity and instills insecurity in another. So Josh, how do you think we work with insecurity to see more possibility? Well, I think that working with parts is and can be really helpful working with that insecure part, working with that insecure parts voice and giving it space to truly say what it needs to say, but also recognizing that that part isn't really always telling the truth. <laughs> you mean you might have to have multiple conversations with that part? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a shocker, but yeah. I mean, it's an ongoing conversation. I don't think that there are many conversations that produce lasting results in just one conversation. Mm, that's a really good point. And so what I'm really hearing is that we get to expand into possibility. Yes. And I think for me, possibility means that there's more than one direction and there's more than one option. For sure. And that kind of ties in with this concept of differentiation. If you have differences, there are a lot more options. Josh, one way that I loved to learn about possibility as a kid was through stories. And I have to admit, most were based in like fantasy, you know, the magical worlds or the um, romantic relationships or whatever was intriguing as a young girl, but I did learn from them. I learned about other people's hardship, what pain could look like, how I could become heroic or courageous. And I think there's something to that about really stepping outside of your own world and being able to listen to someone else's. Yeah. It becomes a challenge, especially when we have over-identified with the story that we tell mm. or the stories that we tell. Yeah. And I think that's a danger, not only within, but also looking like outside of ourselves and over-identifying with particular stories. And so it is that balance. I mean, and I think that kind of goes back to even like why it's hard to ask for what we want and need. It's because we have the stories that we've told ourselves about ourselves and about others. And it becomes really hard because we are expecting these certain things 
our stories can create the idea that if we ask for what we want and need, that we are selfish or that we don't deserve it or that the other is unwilling, unable, or incapable of providing those needs. And that's what we do in therapy. We work with stories. We work with how to interrupt them or shift them in order to see what's possible. But I do find that in dismantling our stories about ourselves and about others, it takes open and honest communication while being able to focus on yourself rather than the other. Tell me more. I find that when we are asking for something or needing something different than what we have received by focusing on how we are experiencing that is much easier to connect with someone rather than saying you fucked up. This is, this is your fault. You need to change and you need to fix it. Whereas saying like, Hey, this really makes me feel X, Y, Z when you're doing A, B, C, and this is how it scares me. This is what hurts about that. This is where that's coming from for me because this is a past experience that's been either similar or that this reminds me of. And this is what I'm really needing from you. I mean, and we mentioned the behavior or the experience that's bothersome but all of that is focused on the person and their own self, like what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I find that it's far easier to create that connection for people to begin rewriting those stories Mm -hmm. and also kind of goes into allowing that person to have that corrective emotional experience, which is a repair process. Like it can completely shift their ways of telling their own stories. And what you mentioned, as we know, as corrective emotional experiences, those are really beautiful spaces to offer vulnerability, create intimacy, and build that experience of connection especially when they're approached with curiosity Mm. and a willingness to truly explore rather than getting caught up in the stories. I think some people really fear that because if they do that, they think they might lose who they are or Mm. what they think or how they feel. And you can still have those parts of you and become curious and open to exploring that with your partner or even in community. One of the things that I share when helping create this type of an experience is that we don't always have to agree with what's being said Mm. to be present for that person. I mean, you can disagree with everything that they're saying But at the end of the day, like that's their experience. Right. And being able to 
holds space in a curious way to understand what someone's experience is can impact how those people are able to connect. Yeah. And what I think is fascinating is that inviting that curiosity is all that we're asking that, that other listener to do. We're not asking you to fix it. We're not asking you to like find ways to manipulate it or to solve it or to take away hurt and pain. It is the ask to be open and just discover whatever that person is bringing to the table. And the person who's sharing might, might not even know where it's coming from or what it means to them. And so for them to be able to discover that for themselves, it's really exciting when it happens. What do you think is the biggest reason that keeps like the receiver, the listener from being curious? I think it's hard for people who are listening to put aside their story which is tied into their insecurity, to those wounds, those patterns that have been set. And there's rules that come with that. Like a rule could be that they look for what to fix or that they're not supposed to listen in a certain way or that they would be judged if they show up in a vulnerable space. And I also think that ties into the difficulty when you are shifting out of your story or putting your like your world aside and that pivot that choice to look at something different creates a lot of discomfort for people not knowing what to do not knowing what to expect anticipating what will happen and so when you're looking at a blank canvas or out into the open or down a path that you don't know where it goes it can be unsettling especially when there have been experiences where value has been placed on that person because they fixed things or because they find solutions. So in every situation, they feel like in order for me to contribute to this, I have to find a way for you to be better. That's a really interesting concept of contribution the expectation that you always have to be contributing or that you have nothing to contribute. And so you say nothing. And on both sides of that, it can feel to the person wanting to share that they're really not being seen or heard. Mm -hmm. A potential in their mind is that you are either ignoring them and their needs and wants don't matter or you are focusing on something that's really not seeing or hearing what they're actually trying to share. Yeah. So what do you think some first steps could be for people to listen? Hmm. That if someone is sharing with you, there is value in you being able to just be there for them Mm -hmm. and being able to truly embody that without reacting in a way that is normal mm-hmm. for them can be super challenging. And I like that word embody. To take something in and make it visible or real, to truly listen, like your your senses are honed in to the conversation, your thoughts, how you're feeling, 
you're having to manage all of that in order to be present to what the person is saying. Yeah. I try to explain it as imagine going to a different country. If people from that country are trying to explain to you their customs and their culture, you don't want to have to go in there and feel like you have to fix what's wrong or what you perceive as being wrong with it. I mean, so a lot of it is, it's an educational thing. So like be willing to just absorb while also recognizing that in doing that and that alone can shift so much, especially in a relationship. I mean, but being able to just hold space and be curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I talk about it with people, it's a, it's like holding a bowl for the other person and they're putting their thoughts, their feelings, their words into that bowl. And you don't have to pack them on your back. You don't have to, you know, even pour them out or dilute them. They're, they're just there sitting between the two of you and you're, giving them back to them, like a reflection. I like the idea of when you add to it, you are diluting what Mm. they're saying and bringing out or putting into it, which I think is a great way to start setting boundaries. Mm. This is what I need in order for this to be a safe space to share. And the boundary or the expectation isn't coming from the other person. It's coming from the person who is sharing. Yes. And I think that's a really important distinction for the listener or for the person who is receiving to not set that boundary for the other person. And as I'm saying it, like I, I want to specify that we're talking about like intimate conversations, usually with like with partners or people that have like a relationship, or even if you don't, you can practice this. But the reason why I specify it is because there are guidelines that both people can hopefully be aware of so that when you enter that conversation, there is a shared understanding of what you're doing there. Because if one person thinks that they're sharing and they're expecting for the other person to listen and the other person doesn't know that they're listening, that creates conflict. Like explaining more about how the listener does not place the expectation. It's kind of like the listener doesn't get to speak into or change what the sharer is giving. They don't get to correct their perspective or change their voice or alter or sometimes even challenge their thoughts or feelings or their experience. And I find that when those things start happening, we go right back into the same cycle and dynamic that we've made be in already. Mm -hmm. And I can say firsthand, like it is hard. It is hard. Especially when it's a new concept and something that you're trying to practice. Yeah. But like with practice with anything, if you want to be good, you have to use it. You have to do it Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again. I will say that one of the other things I can see helping the listener is working with the story you were telling yourself. 
And so if the story you were telling yourself is to stay open or curious or just notice like what's happening, that is a completely different story than I'm not going to be good at this or that person's wrong. I know they are like, that's a very different experience and kind of tying it back in to where we started with like how we're experiencing the world. The stories that I surround myself with impact the story I tell myself. I think about like little kids watching horror movies and how much that impacts their central nervous system. It impacts their fear response, their startle reaction. And I think about how much social media or stories that are out there that end up impacting our sense of security and they create more insecurity with their messaging. And it's very difficult to tell what is possible in those stories. I mean, because at that point, like, we don't know what is a genuine experience versus what is messaging. Right. So how do we start making those distinctions? So I'm going to admit my own security right now. When you ask me that, I'm like, I have no idea. Where do we start with that? Like, how can you tell the difference? And that makes me so uncomfortable to be standing in a space where I don't know what direction we're supposed to turn. What do you think? For me, a part of it would be recognizing that all of us experience this. Like this is not one person and you're alone in that. Like all of us Mm -hmm. experience these messages on a daily basis. That's very true. And then the other side of that is, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to the evaluation, education and enforcement piece. Like how is this making me feel when I'm doing it? Like, if I'm on social media and I'm noticing things and it's starting to make me feel bad, okay, then maybe we need to take stock in that. Or if we are watching something and it's making us not feel how we want to feel, then we have to start being willing to setting those boundaries for ourselves mm-hmm. so that we can begin moving into the direction that we want to. And, and that can be how we want to feel. That can be how we want to think or see things or do things. Yeah. Getting back to that core self. Yeah. And I think when we reinforce that core self, we get the opportunity to see what's possible instead of focusing on what's not. Because a lot of the messaging in the internalizing of the messaging is how we lack, Mm -hmm. what we aren't or need more of. And so it ties into that survival, that negative bias in our brains instead of imagination of what could come to fruition or how we could engage. And I think that is a great question for people to think about and to ponder on, like, how can I engage differently? Mm -hmm. Or how do I want to engage? 
because in answering that honestly for yourself can start kind of potentially mapping out the areas and where we can start examining and looking to make some of those changes, to set up some of those boundaries for ourselves so that we are able to start kind of narrowing the funnel into the thing that we want to become. And when I hear you talk about it that way, it makes me think of integrity. Like instead of focusing on my insecurity, how can I focus on my integrity? And I think that does take that intention of shifting focus, seeing what's possible, and really discovering what feels, thinks, is integrity for each of us. For sure. I would love to hear from our listeners what integrity is to them. Totally. If they're willing to share. I would love to hear our listeners share their experience of listening to the podcast Mm. and what they're getting from it and where they would like us to go. And then we get to listen. And then we get to listen openly. Openly. We get to hold our bowl out. We get to hold our bowl. Well, as always, it's been a pleasure. You can check out our website at stillpointhealing.com and you can check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at stillpointhealing and you can email us with any questions, comments, or topic ideas at so you can heal at stillpointhealing.com tell your friends about our podcast and until next time adios bye, see you later Bye.